Chapter Twenty One of the Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty One. Conclusion. Our tale is now done, and it only remains to us to collect the scattered threads of our little story, and to tie them into a seemly knot. This will not be a work of labor, either to the author or to his readers. We have not to deal with many personages, or with stirring events, and, were it not for the custom of the thing, we might leave it to the imagination of all concerned to conceive how affairs at Barchester arranged themselves. On the morning after the day last alluded to, Mr. Harding, at an early hour, walked out of the hospital with his daughter under his arm, and sat down quietly to breakfast at his lodgings over the chemist's shop. There was no parade about his departure. No one, not even Bunce, was there to witness it. Had he walked to the apothecary's thus early to get a piece of court plaster or a box of lozenges, he could not have done it with less appearance of an important movement. There was a tear in Eleanor's eye as she passed through the big gateway and over the bridge, but Mr. Harding walked with an elastic step and entered his new abode with a pleasant face. "'Now, my dear,' said he, you have everything ready, and you can make tea here just as nicely as in the parlor at the hospital. So Eleanor took off her bonnet and made the tea. After this manner did the late warden of Barchester Hospital accomplish his flitting and change his residence. It was not long before the archdeacon brought his father to discuss the subject of a new warden. Of course he looked upon the nomination as his own, and he had in his eye three or four fitting candidates, seeing that Mr. Cummins's plan as to the living of Puddingdale could not be brought to bear. How can I describe the astonishment which confounded him when his father declared that he would appoint no successor to Mr. Harding? "'If we can get the matter set to rights, Mr. Harding will return.' said the bishop, and if we cannot, it will be wrong to put any other gentleman into so cruel a position. It was in vain that the archdeacon argued and lectured, and even threatened. In vain he, my lorded, his poor father, in his sternest manner. In vain his good heavens were ejaculated in a tone that might have moved a whole synod, let alone one weak and aged bishop. Nothing could induce his father to fill up the vacancy caused by Mr. Harding's retirement. Even John Bold would have pitied the feelings with which the archdeacon returned to Plumstead. The church was falling, nay, already in ruins. Its dignitaries were yielding without a struggle before the blows of its antagonists. And one of its most respected bishops, his own father, the man considered by all the world as being in such matters under his, Dr. Grantley's, control, had positively resolved to capitulate and own himself vanquished. And how fared the hospital under the resolve of its visitor? Badly indeed. It is now some years since Mr. Harding left it, and the warden's house is still tenantless. Old Bell has died in Billy Gazy, and One-Eyed Spriggs has drunk himself to death, and three others of the twelve have been gathered into the churchyard mould. Six have gone, and the six vacancies remain unfilled. Yes, six have died, with no kind friend to solace their last moments, with no wealthy neighbor to administer comforts and ease the stings of death. 
Mr. Harding, indeed, did not desert them. From him they had such consolation as a dying man may receive from his Christian pastor. But it was the occasional kindness of a stranger which ministered to them, and not the constant presence of a master, a neighbor, and a friend. Nor were those who remained better off than those who died. Dissensions rose among them, and contests for preeminence, and then they began to understand that soon one of them would be the last. Some one wretched being would be alone there in that now comfortless hospital, the miserable relic of what had once been so good and so comfortable. The building of the hospital itself has not been allowed to go to ruins. Mr. Chadwick, who still holds his stewardship, and pays the accruing rents into an account opened at a bank for the purpose, sees to that. But the whole place has become disordered and ugly. The warden's garden is a wretched wilderness, the drive and paths are covered with weeds, the flower beds are bare, and the unshorn lawn is now a mass of long damp grass and unwholesome moss. The beauty of the place is gone. Its attractions have withered. Alas, a very few years since it was the prettiest spot in Barchester, and now it is a disgrace to the city. Mr. Harding did not go out to Crabtree Parva. An arrangement was made which respected the homestead of Mr. Smith and his happy family, and put Mr. Harding into possession of a small living within the walls of the city. It is the smallest possible parish, containing a part of the cathedral close and a few old houses adjoining. The church is a singular little Gothic building perched over a gateway, through which the close is entered, and is approached by a flight of stone steps which leads down under the archway of the gate. It is no bigger than an ordinary room, perhaps twenty-seven feet long by eighteen wide, but still it is a perfect church. It contains an old carved pulpit and a reading desk, a tiny altar under a window filled with dark old-colored glass, a font, some half-dozen pews, and perhaps a dozen seats for the poor, and also a vestry. The roof is high-pitched and of black old oak, and the three large beams which support it run down to the side-walls and terminate in grotesquely carved faces, two devils and an angel on one side, two angels and a devil on the other. Such is the church of St. Cuthbert at Barchester, of which Mr. Harding became rector, with a clear income of seventy-five pounds a year. Here he performs afternoon service every Sunday, and administers the sacrament once in every three months. His audience is not large, and had they been so, he could not have accommodated them. But enough come to fill his six pews, and on the front seat of those devoted to the poor is always to be seen our old friend Mr. Bunce, decently arrayed in his beadsman's gown. Mr. Harding is still precentor of Barchester, and it is very rarely the case that those who attend the Sunday morning service miss the gratification of hearing him chant the litany, as no other man in England can do it. He is neither a discontented nor an unhappy man. He still inhabits the lodgings to which he went on leaving the hospital, but he now has them to himself. Three months after that time Eleanor became Mrs. Bold, and of course removed to her husband's house. There were some difficulties to be got over on the occasion of the marriage. 
the archdeacon who could not so soon overcome his grief would not be persuaded to grace the ceremony with his presence but he allowed his wife and children to be there the marriage took place in the cathedral and the bishop himself officiated it was the last occasion on which he ever did so and though he still lives it is not probable that he will ever do so again not long after the marriage perhaps six months when eleanor's bridal honors were fading and persons were beginning to call her mrs bold without twittering the archdeacon consented to meet john bold at a dinner party and since that time they have become almost friends the archdeacon firmly believes that his brother-in-law was as a bachelor an infidel an unbeliever in the great truths of our religion but that matrimony has opened his eyes as it has those of others and bold is equally inclined to think that time has softened the asperities of the archdeacon's character friends though they are they do not often revert to the feud of the hospital mr harding we say is not an unhappy man he keeps his lodgings but they are of little use to him except as being the one spot on earth which he calls his own his time is spent chiefly at his daughter's or at the palace he is never left alone even should he wish to be so and within a twelvemonth of eleanor's marriage his determination to live at his own lodging had been so far broken through and abandoned that he consented to have his violoncello permanently removed to his daughter's house every other day a message is brought to him from the bishop the bishop's compliments and his lordship is not very well to-day and he hopes mr harding will dine with him this bulletin as to the old man's health is a myth for though he is over eighty he is never ill and will probably die some day as a spark goes out gradually and without a struggle mr harding does dine with him very often which means going to the palace at three and remaining till ten and whenever he does not the bishop whines and says that the port wine is corked and complains that nobody attends to him and frets himself off to bed an hour before his time it was long before the people of barchester forgot to call mr harding by his long well-known name of warden it had become so customary to say mr warden that it was not easily dropped no no he always says when so addressed at not warden now only precentor end of chapter twenty one recording by jessica louise st paul minnesota end of the warden by anthony trollope